0: I don't know about you, but I enjoy a good meme. Is it mem or meme? Meme. Okay, we'll go with meme. That's what the first service said as well. So I like a good meme. Now, long before there were memes, I like memes because they have this satire comedy at the same time they're trying to make a point. And, and so you, you take a good meme, you can create it yourself and post it out there, maybe get shared a bunch of times. So again, we kind of become our own little artist, our own little storyteller, our own little advocate for whatever we're advocating for, our own little jokester about whatever we're joking about. But long before there were memes and Facebook and Instagram and all that kind of stuff, we had, I know I'm talking old because I'm old stuff, I'm I'm, I'm still old, Uh, I'm very old. So I, I go back to the comic books, okay, and the comic pages, especially on Sunday morning, You got the comic. How many any adults in here? Remember those comic pages? Okay, thank you. I'm not the only one, okay? Uh, way back, way way back in the dark ages, on Sundays, you would get this paper. It would have a bunch of things in there. But there was this comic pages, and they would be, again, memes, if you will, or stories, if you will, that were jokes that were satire off of whatever was going on politically in that day, whatever the stories they wanted to tell, whatever they wanted to play off of. It was kind of the, the way of the day, which memes are today. Now, there is seldom will there be a meme or a a comic that will last six days or six months. If you got one that goes six months and it's still being shared, you've really done well, okay? But there's something to go for 60 years. Think about that. There's a comic that I have heard about a lot of my life and found it this week that actually is dates back to 1961. And I've heard about it in people talking about it, and, and it's a pretty cool meme, if you will, or a comic, if you will. Juniper, Brother Juniper, 1961, put this comic in the paper and it has been circulated for a long time ever since. Uh, If you think about this, this is how a lot of people live their life. They take their bow and arrow every day. They line it up and they shoot it at something called products on the shelf at Walmart. Better grades. Maybe I'm a health in, in the health profession. I want to help people get healthy. And, and you, you, you shoot this arrow, and then hopefully you hit something meaningful. And, and you go up and you draw a circle around. At the end of your life, hopefully you have hit the target. But the problem is, is that you can't wait till the end of your life to draw the circle. You need to now set circles in front of you that these are the targets that you're aiming at. You're going in this direction. So, we as a church are going to draw a target for you. That for the next 12 months, I would hope that every single person here today and beyond today will take this as their target. Okay, are you ready? It's real simple. Write it down. Everyone win one. Every single one in this room who names the name of Christ, calls themselves a follower of Christ, would you take it as a goal, a target, a, a, a desire in your heart? Ask God to give you the desire if you don't have the desire that you're going to set as a target out there that uh, that I'm going to bring one person closer to eternity, closer to Christ, something meaningful in a deeper relationship with Christ than maybe they've ever had. I'm going to share my story, God's story. I'm going to share Scripture. I'm going to be and I'm going to show and I'm going to share and I'm going to do everything. everything. Everything I can, and I'm gonna pray for that person. And who is that person? We've been asking that now for well over a month. Who is your one? Now, again, if you don't know today, this is fine, we're on a journey here. And you might have several ones. I have about six that I'm praying through right now. That God, who is my one? Now, I can maybe keep all six on the list, if you will. But maybe I'll have three. Maybe I will narrow it down. But God is just, I'm just praying over them now. Who am I going to invest in? Who am I going to pour myself into? Who am I willing to commit myself to pray for every single day looking for that opportunity that I might be able to share what I know about Jesus with them so that they might have a relationship like I have with Jesus? Think about that. Be challenged by that because this is a challenge from Scripture. I'd like to think that I made this up and that we're all going to take this challenge together and I was this great big innovator of this, but actually the scripture calls us to this no less than 120 times. He calls us, commends us, commands us even to go and to share and to show Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people, I'm not using those exact words. That's our description of bringing those 120 statements, if you will, together in realizing that this is a common theme from Genesis to Revelation, that he wants his glory known. He wants his glory in each one of us, his presence, his reality, the density of who he is fully alive in every human being. Now, think about that. How is that going to happen? How is that ever supposed to happen that the glory, which the word glory, I know is a big churchy word, but it literally means the density, the glory of God, the density of God. How can the density, the fullness of God be in a human being? How's he going to get there? Well, one of the ways is we can share it. In fact, it may be the primary way. Barna did a study, and you'll hear me quote from Barna, George Barna, organization out in Ventura, California, that surveys across our land, globally, but really across America, just assessing how America's doing in various faiths, not just Christianity. And they asked a number of Christians a few years back, how many of y'all in the past 12 months have shared with someone, just one person, your relationship with Jesus and how they might have a relationship with Jesus, something along those lines. You have shared with a non-believer, somebody who's not yet a follower of Christ, 55% of those who answered the survey answered that, yes, in the past 12 months, I've shared with that many people. I've shared with at least one person. So if you were here two weeks ago and you took our phone survey, you were a part of a survey and I asked you almost identically the same question that he asked, on a, on a global scale, I asked Grace Point attenders, how many of y'all in the past 12 months have shared the gospel, the good news, the, the way of salvation, your God's story in some form or fashion? How many of you shared with people? And this is the response that we got out of 361 that responded in the two gatherings that we had together. This is the response. Nine people, 35 uh, people or more, uh, or excuse me, 35 people or more said nine or more people they shared the gospel with, all the way down to 101 said they didn't share it with anyone. What does this look like uh, from a percentage basis? 72%, now compare that to 55% nationwide, 72% of those who are part of Grace Point said that they shared the gospel with, they shared Christ's way of salvation with at least one person in the past year. Now, I can say kudos, way to go, we're beating the national average. Are we knocking it out of the park? I wouldn't say that, but hey, way to go, Grace Point Church. There's 28 of us that didn't share it. Now, this not a guilt factor. They're not shaming anything because sometimes it's a process. Sometimes you can't share if you don't know how to share. So some of that's on us. There's a lot of uh, contributing factors to this, but I just want that to rest with you for a moment. That this is a challenge before us all, a target out there for us all. Is that all of us would own our faith deep enough, wide enough, that we would be willing to understand our place in God's kingdom? Do we fully, maybe that's the problem, maybe we don't fully understand our place in God's kingdom. Now I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I'm going to give you a couple of homework assignments today, but one of those is to memorize one verse of the Bible this week. You have all week long. We'll come back together. We'll share it together next week. Here it is. I don't even have it all memorized, so I'm memorizing it with you this week as well. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 20. It's going to be on the screen. I want us to read it all out loud together. Are you ready? Therefore, let's read it together. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. All right, that's our challenge. That's it. That's who we are. That's what we are. That's who we are. That's what we're about. Let's all say it together again. I want us to say it with gusto this time. You were kind of weak there on that weak sauce there. Let's try to get a little bit more gusto. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, How do you memorize a verse? Well, you can just read it and 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 and forget it one way or the other. Here's how I memorize it. I have to break it down in bite sizes. So here's what I want you to do. Monday morning, we're going to even get the first phrase underway. Monday morning, focus on one phrase. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Say it with me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. He tells us what we're about. We are given an assignment. We are given a title. We are given a high prestigious role in the kingdom of God. We are called ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors. Now let that sink in. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador lives and is a resident of this country but sails across the sea, flies in an airplane, goes and lives in a foreign land. And while he's in that foreign land, he's representing the kingdom that he came from to this foreign land. That's our role. We are from another kingdom called heaven. That heavenly kingdom, that godly kingdom is where we have residence. Read Philippians if you want to. That's our residence, but we are ambassadors for Christ in the land in which we live. So tomorrow morning, you can wake up and introduce yourself to whomever you want. You can put it as a signature at the end of your emails. You can even go get business cards printed up. Therefore, I'm an ambassador of Christ. That's your new title. That's your new role. Own it. Wear it. Proudly. That's who you are, okay? You got it? That's our first phrase. We Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Say it with me again. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, Tuesday morning, what are you going to do? You're going to wake up and you're going to add a phrase to it. God is making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us. Say it with me. God is making his appeal through us. What is God doing? God is making his appeal through us. Let that sink in. God is using you and I and our kids and our, and our grandkids and our, He's using my wife. And he's using me. He's using my hands, my feet, my, my mouth, my words. He's using me to make His appeal for them. We're the ones carrying this role as an ambassador into this world and we are making appeals for the King. Therefore, he could have given it to the angels. He could have written it in the clouds. He could have done it in so many other ways. That would have been far more beautiful and far more perfect. But instead, he calls us ambassadors and he says, I want you to go into this world and I want you to carry out my appeal. Okay? We are the carriers of his message. Now, the next phrase, on Wednesday you'll wake up in the morning and you'll add this phrase to it. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We, now this is us out doing the job of an ambassador, we implore you. You, 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 you. are one. Who's your one on Monday? Who's your one on Tuesday? Who's your one on Wednesday? Who's your one that you're going to have a gospel conversation with? That you're going to implore them. You're going to Pray for them. You're going to pour out your soul to them. You're going to talk with them with love and tenderness and compassion. You're going to even try to, as Paul said, persuade them to become followers of Christ. To persuade them means that I'm so convinced that this is the right way, the truth way, the peaceful way, the the fulfilling way, the, the, the God density present way, that man, you don't want to miss it. That's the kind of uh, the role that we have. We implore you on behalf of Christ. What are we imploring them on the behalf of Christ to do? To one thing. One thing, one thing. Only if we don't get this right, we mess everything else up. Everything else is secondary to this one thing. Are you ready? Be reconciled to God. People are separated from God. People are missing in their relationship with God. Our, our ambassador role, our appeal to this world, our message to this world uh, that, that we are imploring this world to do is to be reconciled to God. Now think about that. That is our role in this world. If we mess that up, we mess everything else up. That is why we are left breathing and existing in this world today. Take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15. This is our verse for the week. I hope that you will take time, make time, get these phrases down meditate on each phrase, phrase by phrase. May it give you a sense of who you are, what you're about and how you're to do it. May it give you a sense of purpose and mission every single day that you breathe, that God gave you another breath for another day, for another reason, for another encounter, for another gospel opportunity that you might have to be able to share with people. And I use the word gospel. I, uh, please, I want, I want you to understand, the word gospel is, I know, a very Christianese word, and I, I sometimes say it, and I don't even think about what it means, but I realize also there's a lot of people who don't know what gospel means. Gospel means good news. But it doesn't just mean good news. In the first century, it just meant good news. But in the first century, from from the time of Christ forward, it actually took on another meaning. It actually was the message of Jesus Christ loving, living, dying, rising again so that we can have a relationship and be reconciled to God. That is the gospel. That Jesus Christ lived, loved, died, rose again so that we could enter into a relationship with God again so that we could go to heaven when we die but we could have Him right here on earth as well. And that we could walk in a relationship with Him every single day of our life. That is the good news. When you come to the Gospel of Luke, you can find chapter 15, and you ask yourself, where is the most center of the Gospel? Where's the core? Where's the essence? Where is it all boiled down to? And Luke chapter 15, it has got to be one of the key passages. This is what William Barclay, a New Testament scholar, said. He said, There is no chapter in the New Testament so well known, so dearly loved than the 15th chapter of Luke's gospel. It has been called the gospel in the gospel, the good news in the good news, the core of the good news at the very essence bedrock foundation it's the gospel. So Luke 15, what is this Luke 15 all about? Let's look at just the first two verses. It gives us the context for the entire chapter. First two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners, those were all lumped together, but they wanted to especially call out those tax collectors because they were the, they were the quality of the sinners. You want to talk about sinners and not as little sinners or a kind of sinners? These are the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees, the religious muckety-muck, the high and mighty, the, the ones who had their lives all figured out, put together, they so thought. Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. So you can see, you see this two sides bickering over what? What are they bickering over? Because this man, this is what the Pharisees and scribes are saying, because this man, they're pointing at Jesus, this man receives sinners. This man receives sinners. Let that phrase sink in. What does this man do? He receives sinners. Now, this is not the only time Jesus is called to be hanging out and buddying up with and bellying up to the dinner table with uh, sinners. It's all throughout the Gospels. In fact, if Jesus had stayed in the tomb, they said this would have been his epitaph. But he rose from the dead. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. So earlier on in Luke, it says this, the son of man, Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at the glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Also, a similar refrain is given in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19 of Jesus being a friend of sinners. This whole tax collector thing, I can't say enough about it. So to be a tax collector in Israel meant that you were a Jew. You knew the language, you knew the culture. Nobody could be talking in another language and you not understand it. So you were a Jewish citizen, a Jewish-born person, and you were a turncoat. You had sold out to Rome. Rome was now who you're loyal to. You sold out to Rome and now you're paying Romans and Caesar's paying you back. You get to have both benefits of both worlds. You're a Jew in a Jewish world, but you're also a Roman acknowledged person. Caesar didn't care how much you kept for yourself, as long as you got met your quota. You met your quota, you keep the rest for yourself. That was that kind of uh, incentivized kind of work style that they had. So tax collectors were hated because they were Jews who had sold out to Rome. They were turncoats. They were not loyal. They were they were everything to the scum of the earth. They were not respected. They were not loved. They were not liked. They were actually despised. But yet Jesus bellies up to the table, hangs out with, sits at the bar with them, and drinks and. Eats eats with the very people. For example, you know Zacchaeus. He was from Jericho. He was the chief tax collector. And Jesus goes to even his house and hangs out with him. And Zacchaeus becomes a follower of him. He was in the Jericho region. Another time he was in Jerusalem. He's hanging out. He's walking the streets. He runs up to a guy named Levi. Levi, Levi, come and follow me. Levi becomes a follower of Jesus. Later on, his name comes Matthew. Writes the Gospel of Matthew, by the way. You can read it for yourself from a tax collector. He's got a, a book of the Bible. So Matthew or Levi, now what does he do? He turns around and throws a party and invites all of his tax collector friends over to the house. This is what it says in Luke five twenty nine. Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors reclining at the table with him. What you see here is Jesus was not afraid to go to the bar. Jesus was not afraid to hang out with a few dams and hells in his life. He didn't get ruffled up whenever somebody didn't live a good and holy life. In fact, what Jesus did is Jesus hung out with them. He buddied up next to them. He called them to be his disciples. Now I want to take us back to Luke 15. He receives sinners. This word receives is a very important word here. There's a word in Greek called dexomai, which means to receive something. When you put the word pros dexomai, which is the word that he uses here, it actually means that you are leaning in and receiving it. For example, Jesus didn't just receive sinners leaning back on his heel. Oh, if you'll come and you'll clean yourself up and you'll hang out with me, then I'll let you hang out with me. But you're kind of bad reputation for me, but you call ahead and come out and hang out with me. No, Jesus leans forward on his toes, not on his heels, on his toes to receive sinners to him. He was excited about them. Josephus uses the same prox word in his own writings. Josephus, first century historian, he uses this word as at one time receiving money. Now, anybody's holding out a $100 bill and handing it out to you, how many of you are going to go, no, 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 thank you, I don't need a $100 bill? No, you're going to get on the ends of your toes and you're going to lean forward and you're going to walk forward and you're going to take that $100 bill because you're proctexamined. You're wanting that. So what Jesus does is he proctexamized these people who are far from him. He leans in. He wants them. He invites them to hang out with him. He was a welcomer. Now, in this story, what he does is he turns around and tells a story. Jesus is a consummate storyteller. He tells about 43 different stories in the New Testament, 48, excuse me, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These stories are called parables. Parables are earthly stories, but they have a heavenly meaning. If you'll notice anytime you read one of the parables of Jesus, he'll always have an answer key, typically, because the disciples were kind of young and dumb and they couldn't get it. Uh, and so he had to have an answer key to kind of help them understand what the story was that was being told. And so he's going to tell a story. The thing is, he's going to tell three stories in one chapter to answer these critics. Now, some people have said this is one parable with three parts, or this is three different parables. I don't. I can't get into that and break that apart. But there are three different stories back to back to back, and they're all pointing back to the same encounter. The one story is of lost sheep ones of a lost coin and ones of a lost son. So let's break them down real quickly because we're only going to talk about one of them. The lost sheep speaks of the vulnerability of humanity. He calls us sheep. He refers to us from, from Psalm 23 to John 10 to Acts chapter 20 to Hebrews chapter 13. He refers to humanity as sheep. It's not the greatest compliment. The sheep weren't the sharpest animals in the barnyard. Think about it. Here's one example. If you have cows, the cows know when to come home. They know when it's time to milk. They know when it's time to feed. They have a homing mechanism within them. God gave it to them. Horses know where the feed trough is. They know how. They have a home instinct about them. Dogs, you can... Dogs find their way home. Cats. Have you ever tried to get rid of a cat? They have this mysterious ability to find their way back to your house. You feed them one time, they're your cat forever. And so I'm all about feeding the neighborhood cats and then leaving them out. No, I'm kidding. So you've got this homing instinct that is built within, but sheep, little lambs, don't have it. They will walk off and keep walking off. So again, it speaks to the vulnerability of hum, hum, humankind. So let's, we'll focus on that in a moment. But then there's also the lost coin. We don't have time. She tears the house apart, can't find the lost coin. Finally finds the last, lost coin. Because you know what about lost coins? It speaks of the helplessness of humanity. Because we aren't... ever find, Have you ever found that money finds you? No, you have to go find money. You find it in your pocket. We recently were burglarized in our house. I know it's kind of a weird thing. It just recently happened. Whole story behind that. Another day, another uh, another another topic. In that, Lori and I were getting ready to go on vacation. We like to go on vacation debt-free, so we save up money. And so not only were they stole something very important in the house, but they also, we were afraid, stole our vacation money. And so what does Mike do whenever he realizes that, hey, maybe the money's gone too? And so he tears the house apart. We find that money. They didn't take the money. There's an energy. There's an excitement. There's an adrenaline rush whenever you're looking for the vacation money. All right? So it is with humanity. There's an energy. There's an excitement. There's an adrenaline rush because humankind don't find themselves, okay? There's a helplessness about it. And this is the lost sons. We don't have time to go. in. this is probably the most popular of all the, this, the parables of Jesus is maybe the lost son. But we don't know which son he's actually lost because one law, one's lost, but the other one's an arrogant, self entitled son left at home, and so almost there could be both sons are lost in their own rights. Again, don't have time to develop that. So, is this one parable? Is it three parables? We, uh, we have time to go on that. Let's just look at number one. Number one. Let's read the whole passage in its context because it answers this question: How significant is one? How significant is one? Here it is, chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man prosdexomized sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable. One man, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine into the open field and go after the one that he has lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now he gives us the answer key. I said there's answer keys at the end of most of these parables. Answer keys, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. How significant is one? One is enough to cause a party to break loose in heaven. There is more joy in one in heaven over one sinner who repents than ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Three reasons every one should and must be reached. Everyone should and must be reached. Three reasons. One, everyone is wayward. Every one of us, including me, yours truly, including you, including your precious children that can do no wrong, and grandchildren who can do no wrong, they are wayward. As the old hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That's us. We are prone to wonder. There's a proclivity towards sinfulness. There's a proclivity towards stupid. There's a proclivity towards wrong living. There's a proclivity. We just have this natural draw. It's a gravitational pull. It's a part of our nature. And it's a part of the choices of life that we make. There's a proclivity, and proclivity, if we're not, you we don't wrestle that baby down, whatever your proclivity is, it will turn to an addiction and when it becomes an addiction it becomes a part of you and then it owns you you don't wrestle it down it's now wrestling you down it's now controlling you and if you're not careful we'll relabel the addiction and we'll call it a disorder It could be an eating disorder, a drinking disorder. It can be a sexual disorder. There's all kinds of disorders that we can call it. And I realize that I'm not making light of any of this. I'm just pointing out that every single, every last one of us has a proclivity, has a propensity towards wondering. Every last one, even that perfect son that was left at home, he himself had a spirit of entitlement. He himself had a spirit of rightness about him and wrongness about his other brother. So he was even judgmental. So again, was there two lost sons or was there one lost son? Some people carry their proclivity towards sin, their their disorder, if you will. And they don't like that. And they wear it with pride. Literally, they'll wear their proclivity with pride out there. Others will wear it with shame and remorse and hold it back and hide it from others. Some people will call it their their thorn in the flesh. Other people will call it their choice, their lifestyle, their way of living. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 calls it this. Read out loud with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible calls our proclivities sin. The sin that we get sucked into becomes a part of us, if we're not careful, becomes a part of the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Just like it happened in Adam, it's happening in you and I will happen in the next generation. Romans 5.11, read it with me. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, read it out loud, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So it started with one, but it went to two, and two went to three, and three to four, and you know the rest of the story. It ends up right in our generation, right in my time, right in my genes, right in my DNA, right in my nature, and right in my choices. It becomes a part of me. You say, oh, oh, am oh, oh, I?" but by and large, I'm a pretty good person. When you stack me up next to Ted Bundy, I'm actually not that bad. You may not be as bad as Ted Bundy in your eyes, but stack yourself up next to a holy, righteous, perfect God. How are you stacking up now? Because that's the measurement of right and wrong. James chapter 2, verse 10 says it like this. Whoever keeps the whole law but yet fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's why even one sin separates us from God. Not all of the sins. You didn't do them all. And you may never do them all. And pray, God, you don't do them all. But the reality is, is that one separates us from God. And again, back to this sheep metaphor. This is not just a New Testament thing. It's a, it's, it's all the way back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6. Follow along as I read. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us, everyone in this room, every last one of us, we've all turned everyone to his own way. Everyone is wayward. Everyone is needing of a redemption gospel story to be told into their life. And what is that? It's the next phrase. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it was God who laid on him, Jesus on the cross, the iniquity of every last one of us because we chose our own way. Because we're wayward people. Back on the sheep metaphor real quickly. The sheep, you think about this. This is something I had read just this week. Philip Keller has written an entire book on the shepherding, on the sheep and understanding it even from a biblical context. And he talks about how a sheep in an old English word will cast itself. Okay, think about a sheep. It's got all this big, heavy wool walking around. You know, that's what, it's, that's what God made it it's like. And you ever touch a, 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 a sheep that's not been sheared? I mean, it's just it, you could just lay on it, make a pillow out of that baby. And so you just fill it, and it's all fluffy. And, and what happens? It's got these little four little little legs. It's got all this big uh, lump of fur out out there. But what will happen when this sheep gets? Cast is if it eats all day and grazes all day and then it goes over to the field to lie down. It can easily lie down and not get up to the point that its feet will dangle straight up in the air. And it's so top heavy that it cannot turn itself over. And can you imagine, this has got to be a great meme. It's little four little feet just dangling up in the air trying to turn itself over, but it literally cannot. That's why the shepherd is so important because the shepherd sees the cast over sheep of the lamb and he comes and he writes the lamb, gets it back on his feet, saves its life because literally what will happen to a sheep who's not being shepherded, it will stay there until the blood circulation leaves its feet because no longer can it get there. It will begin to fill with fluid in its lungs and it will die right there while the vultures are circling overhead. Kid you not. Now imagine that, keeping that image in your mind. Imagine with me when Jesus got out of the boat and He walks into this city full of people. And what does He feel inside of Him in Mark 6.34? He says, when He went ashore, He saw a great crowd and a compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We need to see our friends where we live, work, learn, or play, and we need to ask the deep down question. Are they a sheep without a shepherd? Because if they get into a situation, they may never get out of it. They may literally die in that situation. Now listen, we're not coming to them as if we've got it all figured out. Remember, we're a sheep too. We're one one of the waywards one too. If we hadn't found Christ, if somebody had not shown us the way and shepherded us into a relationship with Christ and Jesus becomes our ultimate chief shepherd, then we would never, John chapter 10, read that for yourself. That's where Jesus is our ultimate chief shepherd. Then we, my friends, would would not know Christ. So what do I do? I am one beggar and I am helping another beggar find bread. That's all it is. I'm not perfect. I haven't figured it all out. It's one beggar helping another beggar find bread. That's what, that's what it is when I share my faith. And what does it mean to share your faith? It can be as simple as me telling you about my life before Christ. I, was, I myself was wayward. I myself was messed up. What was my life like before? How did I come to faith in Christ? Give me a bit of that epic moment, that time in your life whenever it changed everything, whenever the light came on, and the, and, and almost as if maybe the heavens opened your heart was full. You knew at that point you were encountering God. And if you've never had one of those moments... You need it. You need it. You can't get enough religion. You can't find enough churches. You can't read the Bible enough until you've had that epic born-again experience with God Almighty. And it's a life-changing moment because that's the third thing you talk about is you tell them about the difference that Christ has made in your life. You can go out and do that today. Today. To your waiter at a restaurant, you can do it to somebody at a coffee uh, a coffee shop tomorrow you can you, you can do it on an elevator. you can do it in a ninety seconds. You can share your god's story and you have shared the road map that took you to faith in christ it's personal it's not threatening you do it prayerfully, you do it with conviction, you do it in truth, and watch what happens. Read Acts 26. When Paul did this, King Agrippa nearly became a believer of Christ. Everyone, everyone is wayward. Number two, everyone is important. We need to see that. The the team that's in Greece right now that shared with 150 refugee women and children yesterday, our ladies shared with them, The gospel showed and shared Jesus, every single one of those refugees that are homeless, countryless, uh, uh, that don't have anything to their name, every single one of them are important. But you know what? Your children are important. Every single one of them. And neither of them is more important than the other Your barista who will serve you coffee on on Monday morning that you've seen day after day, week after week, guess what? That person is just as important as the next person. Everyone is important. No one is more important than everyone. we got to understand that. No one is more important than everyone. Look at verse 4. He said, What man, if you have a hundred sheep, he's lost one of them does not leave the 90 and 9 in the open country. He leaves them in a safe pot, spot and go after the one that is lost. Now, I'll tell you this. Math for me is not easy. But 99% is easy. 99 out of 100, easy. I'll take care of the 99 and I'll make a big fat excuse for the one. Hey, a 99 on in the exam, I'll take that any day of the week. But he says... If one becomes missing out of 99, you secure the ones out in the open field and you go and you find the one. Why is that important? Because I don't have time to read it. You jot it down, but you can read it even in the Exodus 22 verses 10 to 13. You can read how it is written into the Old Testament law that if you are to lose a person's donkey, a person's ox, or a person's sheep, you had better bring evidence that it was stolen or that it was killed because otherwise you are responsible to pay it back. Just imagine this. As an ambassador of Christ, that I have been sent by Christ, by God, to appeal to people... I have been given a shepherding flock that I am responsible to God for and I can't let one go missing. Who has God put in your life that He has given you responsibility? We have a son in the military. And I'm thankful to God that the military says this, that no man is left behind. Why does that tell me that? That tells me if a platoon goes out, if a brigade goes out, if, if a, a handful go out on patrol, that every one of them is going to be accountable because every one matters. I want my son to matter. I want your son to matter. I want your daughter to matter. I want your children to matter. I want you to matter. I want your spouse to matter, but I also want your neighbor to matter. Every single one matters. Every person David Platt said, every person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. Who's your one? Number three, every last one is our priority. We might get 99 in the fold and we might say they're safe, but what about the one? We're not done, Northwest Arkansas. We are not done. It is a, it is a value of ours and we will celebrate it and we will make it a priority. And if we value it, we will celebrate it. And if we value it, we will remember it. And if we value it and we say it's a priority, then we need to keep it A priority. When we have a sign out in the gallery and you walk into it and you walk by it every day and you see 508 lights up there and it's been up there for over a year and you see one by one light coming on, light coming on, you see dark lights. What do they mean? Every one of those means that God, we believe, pastoral team prayed about it. We believe that there's 508 people That God is calling us, at least right now, in this time and in this season, that He has called us, in this world, to shed God's truth in. And we are turning on, seeing one light at a time come on, and we are rejoicing over every single one of those lights. Because every single one of those is important. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, And when He had found it, when He had found that lost sheep, He lay it on His shoulders. And what did He do? he's rejoicing. I found it. He's rejoicing the sheep is safe. The lamb is safe. It's okay. We're all right. He's rejoicing. But notice this. He goes right into the next verse and he says, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors because it's not enough to rejoice. Have you ever throw a party for yourself? It's not that much fun. And so he's rejoicing. He's having the party. But then he calls his neighbors and his friends together and he calls them to do the same thing he's been doing. He says this in the plural, Rejoice with me. I've been rejoicing. I want you to rejoice with me. He makes it a party. We are going to celebrate. Whenever I look across northwest Arkansas, and again, back to Barna, Barna says 34% of northwest Arkansas will not be in a church today, nor next Sunday, nor the next Sunday. They don't go to church. They don't. Some of them don't even believe in Jesus. Some of them have given up on the church. They haven't given up on God, but they've given up on the church. But 34% of northwest Arkansas, it says that, listen, not only is it 1% not reached, are not reached and we need to be about it as a church and as individuals. We need to be about this. We're not being perfect. We are one beggar helping another beggar find bread. And I can tell you where you live, work, learn, or play, you can turn it into your mission field. I love the McCords and I saw Sarah just between services and Trent and Sarah are part of our church and I love how Sarah has a passion, a heart for Haiti, and she's raising money and support. She's going down there as a nurse practitioner to serve the needs of the under-resourced in Haiti. And I love how Trent is, even as a dentist in northwest Arkansas, is opening up his practice so he can serve needs of northwest Arkansas. And the way he's done that is he's linked up with Canopy. Canopy is an organization in northwest Arkansas that helps uh, refugees that have been placed in northwest Arkansas, and he's helped them uh, with their dental care. And what would happen recently is a guy named Humain uh came to him for a root canal. Now Canopy is helping them get their language, get their, their initial entry into the country. These are people that are being relocated in northwest Arkansas from war torn countries. They don't have a home, they don't have a place, and what are they experiencing? The first person they're experiencing are people like Trent, who says, I'll do your root canal for free. Anybody want to volunteer for a root canal? And he said said this man actually was very grateful for a root canal. And he has been able to serve his whole family. Now, what is he doing? He's just showing and he's just sharing Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. Because that's what we do as followers of Jesus. Because everyone is a priority and must be a priority for us. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everyone matters because everyone matters to God. And if everyone matters to God, everyone needs to matter to me. And that means every last one. Are we counting them? Yes, because every one matters and everyone counts. Who's your one? Three one walls out there. I challenge you today, if you know who your one is, write it down. You got two ones, write it down. Write them down. Don't give us their email address and their social security numbers and all that kind of stuff. We're not interested in that. We want you to pray for that. We want to pray with you as you pray for them. We want to see our our church praying for them. I'll tell you this. If their name's on that board, I will pray for their name one by one by one. I will be praying with you as you pray about going to that one and sharing with that one. Go to verse seven and I'll end here because this is the key that unlocks the whole parable. Just so I tell you, There will be more joy. That word joy is the same root word of the root word rejoicing and the root word rejoice in the previous verses. First of all, that man rejoices when he finds his sheep. Then he calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice. Notice this. Notice this. It keeps building. The party's getting bigger. First, it's himself. Then it's his friends and neighbors. Then it goes to heaven. Everyone in heaven, I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The party just got bigger. And it just got real. Because if you want to excite heaven, if you want to send heaven into into a hallelujah celebration, if you want to send life, bring people to Jesus. How do I do that? I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I'm just one wayward person helping another wayward person know Jesus because every one matters. If you're here today, you may be one of the ones who needs to have a relationship with Jesus. You can talk about your life before Christ But you can't point to a time in your life when you ever had a life-changing experience with Jesus. My challenge to you is really simple. Ask Jesus into your heart. I don't know what to say. There's going to be prayer partners on the back landing, across the front. We're here. Come to us. We'll pray with you. This is a journey that we want to take together with you. Then you'll have a story to tell about your life in Christ. And then you walk out into this world living sin, ready to live a changed life with Christ. If that's you, this is your time. Others who are followers of Christ, who have been born again, let me challenge you. This is your moment to nail down who your one is.